Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air. This podcast is dedicated to the millions of family caregivers who want wellness tips and self-care solutions, who seek expert advice, and who want news about healthy aging and how to create well-home design in our forever homes. I'm Sherry Snelling, a corporate gerontologist, author, and educator, a TV interviewer, host, and news commentator. I'm joining you from Southern California, where our interviews and news take us all across the country to explore the many ways to help you on your caregiving journey and to lift you up here at Caregiving Club On Air. Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air and our November Thanksgiving episode where we're going to continue to celebrate and focus on National Family Caregiver Month as well as National Alzheimer's Awareness Month with some research updates for you. And of course, since it's the holidays, we're also going to be talking about those family conversations as we come together about caregiving and also dementia-friendly travel during the holidays. And for November 11th, Recognition of Veterans Day, we're going to have some news around caring for veterans and particularly our homeless veterans. I'm Sherry Snelling, your host, and I have two really wonderful um, interviews on our episode today. The first is with Megan Whitbrock, who is the education director for UCI Mind, which is all about Alzheimer's disease and dementia associated with the University of California at Irvine, which is in my backyard. But the UCI Mind is one of just about 30 or so ADRCs or Alzheimer's disease research centers across the country that are affiliated with academic medical centers, where there's a lot of resources provided for family caregivers in terms of education, support groups, but also information about the latest drug therapies and drugs that are on the market, clinical trials, research, and a lot of other really, really valuable information. So Megan is going to be here to tell us all about that and really excited to have her on the episode. And then somebody new that I recently met that I thought has just a really innovative model for home care is Neil Shaw, who is the founder and CEO of Care Yaya. And you're going to hear about Neil, how Neil is approaching home care in a very different way, really bringing together younger generations with older generations and also providing some much needed respite and peace of mind for family caregivers. So that's going to be another wonderful interview for us on this episode. And then, of course, in caregiver wellness news, we're going to touch upon uh, loneliness. We know that during the holidays, you know, it's a time of celebration and family and coming together. But very often for a lot of people, it can also be a time of loneliness. And with the recent passing of Matthew Perry, the actor who starred in Friends, but who was also a real advocate for people who had gone through drug addictions like himself, loneliness was a big factor. So we're going to touch upon that. We're also going to give you a little insight into our December holiday gift guide. It's our, our third annual gift guide, but we're going to talk about one company that's actually doing some great things for caregivers around caregiver month. So stay tuned for that. And then in our welcome design news, as I mentioned, we're going to talk a little bit about tips around traveling with the loved one with dementia, particularly during these holidays, and also a really great organization, Tunnel to Towers. If you haven't heard of them, listen up because they are doing fantastic things with veterans and helping out veterans, caregivers and families, and just a terrific organization you're going to want to learn a little bit more about. And then finally, as we always do, our episode will end with our Me Time Monday wellness hack. 
This one, of course, for the holidays is our recipe for gratitude gravy. So I am really thrilled to have our guest on today, Dr. Megan Whitbach with UCI Mind. And, you know, since we're focusing on Alzheimer's and family caregivers this month, I thought it would be great to have Megan come on and really explain to us what is an Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, which is what she is part of. And so, Megan, welcome to Caregiving Club on Air. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's such a perfect time to talk about this type of thing. Yes, it is. I mean, families are getting together. And so this could be really part of the conversations or things we should be thinking about. Now, the first question I always ask all of our guests is, where are we talking to you from today? Yes, I'm coming from Irvine, California, more specifically UC Irvine, which is sort of central Orange County. Wonderful. And as I mentioned up front, so UC Irvine is actually one of, I think it's only 30 of these Alzheimer's disease research centers across the country that are designated by the National Institute of Health, NASA Institutes of Health and Institute on Aging. So tell us a little bit more about what does an ADRC do? What should our listeners know about the work that you do there and what can help them? Yeah, it's a really good question. So we're part of, and it's always changing. So I think it might, I was at a meeting last week and I think it was, we're up to 37 of these centers. Okay, right up to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as you correctly said, yeah, these are nationally designated. So nationally funded Alzheimer's disease research centers by the National Institute on Aging, right? And the purpose is, to understand the causes of and treatments for Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. So we have a national network of these centers that are working towards that goal, which is really cool. Right. And, well, and it, even though there's 37, which is wonderful to hear, you mm-hmm. know, again, they're they're kind of scattered across the country. We're lucky. I live in Southern California, just a few steps away from you. So we're lucky to have one at UCI Irvine, mm-hmm. it, you know, here in Southern California. Then you mentioned to me that even though you work collaboratively with the other centers, each center kind of does things differently. So tell us a little bit about what the ADRC at UCI and you see, I mind what you, what you guys are doing. Yeah, we all, and I'll get into the details in a, in a in a minute about how we're similar. We're we're different in how each one operates. So while we're all working towards the same goal, we each do it a little bit differently. Primarily, what we do is research and education. So we're we're actively doing human trials and cell studies and animal research and molecular research towards this goal of finding a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. But we each do it in different ways. And so at our ADRC, we primarily do research, human research, and education and outreach. So I'll start with our research. Our flagship research study that's actually similar across all ADRCs is our longitudinal aging study. This is where we 
enroll people typically 65 and older, maybe a little younger, but primarily 65 and older, and we follow them, aka we collect data on people year after year. And we don't ask them to take a medicine or try a different diet or do anything. We just follow them year after year. And at the end of the year of their life, we collect their brain. And the idea is that we really want to understand what is the difference between normal aging and aging with dementia, right? And this will help us get at what are the mechanisms that are driving aging with dementia? How does it look different? What happens in the years preceding the onset of symptoms that maybe we could use to predict what's going to happen to someone later in life, right? So someone who's enrolled in our ADRC, we get to see them once a year. They come in once a year. And in our ADRC, we have about 300 people that we see every year. Other centers see people at sort of more people or less people and at different intervals. But we see our participants once a year. They come in, they get a a pretty lengthy neurological exam. They do cognitive testing. And then we do an interview with them and their potentially their study partner to learn how they're doing functionally, carrying on a conversation, balancing a checkbook, paying attention to a movie, that type of thing. At the end of their yearly exam, a few months later, they get a comprehensive report of how they're doing, whether they're aging as they should be or as we would expect them to, or if they have some cognitive impairment. So they get a report of how they're doing, and then we get a lot of data, which is great. And then we also collect sometimes blood, sometimes cerebral spinal fluid through a lumbar puncture. Sometimes we collect skin specimens to do stem cell research. And as I said, at the end of their life, we collect people's brains. And that way we can connect all of that data that we collected while they were alive with what we're seeing in the brain, whether there's pathology, what type of pathology, where it's occurring in the brain or not, potentially. So it's really powerful. I love that. I, I'm thinking about it myself now. Okay, Tom, you, you a couple questions for you on this. Yeah. You said over the age of 65 is the group, the cohort that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. People still join this research study or you is it closed and now you're just following this group throughout their lives? No, we're actively recruiting participants to join this study. This is ongoing. It's actually been going on. ADRCs have been in existence for about almost 40 years. And it's been this ongoing, we enroll people, we're still learning a lot. So yeah, it's active to enrollment. And in particular, we're we're looking for anyone who's willing to join. In particular, we're looking for people from underrepresented groups, because we don't know enough about how this disease affects people across racial and ethnic groups and across the socioeconomic scale as well. Yeah. And just to remind our audience, I know we've had you know, lots of people on who have talked about Alzheimer's, but this is really science in action. And a couple of things to think about, we know that two-thirds of all cases of Alzheimer's are women. So if you're one of our female listeners, you may be interested in you know participating in this. But also, uh, African-Americans are twice as likely and Latinos are one and a half times as likely to develop Alzheimer's and dementia versus our white population. So as you mentioned, there are communities of color that are more affected by this. 
And, you know, I think of it, well, it reminds me a little bit, we had Mark Schultz on from the Harvard Adult Development Study, and, you know, they've been doing their study for 80 years, following people throughout their lives. It reminds me of that, but it's very brain-focused, obviously. It's, a, it's all about brain health. But, you know, if you were going to donate your organs, let's just say, on your driver's side, this is something similar, and, it's, and it gives you some feedback as well as to your lifestyle choices and things that are happening about your life that might be affecting your cognitive performance. I love that. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I think, and you and I talked a little bit about, is it's difficult to get or encourage people to get involved in clinical trials. And many people think, well, if it's an Alzheimer's study, why, or my loved one doesn't have that yet, or we haven't been diagnosed, so it doesn't pertain. But and you said you're you're wanting to look at just any adult so you can compare. Tell us a little bit about what you know, what is important about people that they should know about these clinical studies and getting more involved. So from this longitudinal research study, and I have one, I'll bring it back at the end. So so one thing that we've learned are or, or a few things that we've learned. One important thing is that we now know that this disease develops the pathological features of this disease, the amyloid, the beta amyloid plaques, the tau neurofibrillary tangles are developing in the brains of people decades before they experience symptoms. And we're able to detect it through new technology, through the collection of cerebral spinal fluid, but also through PET scans where we can take pictures of the brain and actually see where these amyloid plaques and tau neurofibrillary tangles are, are depositing in the brain. Here. And so that's been huge for our field because now we can see whether someone might be at significantly greater risk of developing symptoms for Alzheimer's disease later on. And so what we're doing now is, yes, we're doing a lot of clinical trials in people with Alzheimer's disease, with mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease, but we're also doing studies earlier in the continuum of the disease, in this preclinical phase where people have the plaques and tangles in their brain, but they're not yet experiencing symptoms because we think that's where we're going to have the most impact, not just slowing the disease once symptoms have happened, but stopping it or at least slowing it by five to 10 years from ever developing. That'll give us the most quality time with our loved ones is that if we can stop or slow the disease before it even starts. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's so important. You know, a lot of people who are still just learning about Alzheimer's don't even know it is progressive. You yeah. grow through those stages where it gets worse and worse with all the ensuing years. And, you know, this is a great segue into, I want to just have you cover at a very high level for our audience, but there's, there's been two new drugs, I think, approved by the FDA that are the first drugs in two decades, I guess, that we've seen that, that pertain to Alzheimer's and myocognitive impairment. And one of the things that I've been reading, and I'd love for you to bring into this with us, is that they're really most effective, what you're saying, earlier in the stage of the disease, not when you're in much later stages where it may not have that much impact. Tell us a little bit about maybe those drugs and, and what people should be thinking about. Now, I know, and also, can you talk a little bit about the cost and what's going on there? Because I know they were very, very expensive and there were questions about whether it would be covered by Medicare. So what should our audience really know about these new breakthroughs in drug therapy? Yes, that's a great question. And I will start by saying, 2023 has been a monumental year 
built on many important research advances, but this year has been a monumental year in a lot of respects. One, and I can talk about a little bit more about it, progress in diagnostics. We've seen blood tests that are starting to come online. We have a, a lot more we need to do, but we're starting to see blood tests, which is great because this offers a much lower burden, more widely available test for people around the country in suburban and rural areas alike. So this is great. And we've seen expansion of care programs as well. And then to your point, we've seen full FDA approval of Lakembi, which is a disease-modifying drug to treat Alzheimer's disease. We've also seen approval of a drug um, called Brexpiprazole, which is the first FDA-approved drug to treat agitation in Alzheimer's disease. But your question pertains to Lakembi or Lacanumab and Aduhelm or Aducanumab. And so I'll talk more specifically about that. Okay, so I want to preface this by telling you that I'm not a medical doctor. So my knowledge on this is, is very limited. I'll give you, I'm going to give you an overview, but I would urge our audience, one, to talk to their doctor, go to their PCP, go to their neurologist, because they're the experts. They're the true experts here. And then secondly, the Alzheimer's Association is a really good resource. I was just on there today, just making sure my facts were right, learning about aducanumab and Lakembi. Fantastic resource to learn more online about, about these drugs. Okay. So back in 2021, in June of 2021, the FDA granted accelerated approval to a drug called Aduhelm. Previously, it's marketed as Aduhelm. It's sort of previous name is Aducanumab. And what Aducanumab effectively has shown is that it lowers amyloid plaques in people with mild cognitive impairment and mild dementia. And so the FDA granted accelerated approval. Oh, let me st let me step back, Sherry. So what what they were able to show was that uh, aducanumab lowers amyloid plaques in the brain of people with MCI and mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. What they weren't able to conclusively show was that aducanumab could slow clinical decline in these participants. Ma and so FDA went in and said, okay, we're going to grant you accelerated approval on the provision that you do a, another clinical trial to show that this drug provides a clinical benefit. Meaning, mm -hmm. great, you've been able to show us that you can lower amyloid plaques, the one of the pathological features of the disease, but we don't yet know if that has any effect on improving people's lives, right? If it, it means right. that easing of cognitive symptoms. Right. So we sort of, as a field, tackled that. What do we do with it? The Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, I probably got that wrong, came in and said, well, we're we're not going to cover a drug that we don't know if it, you know, slows clinical decline. Right. And so we dealt with this expensive drug that we weren't sure was working. They're in the process of doing clinical trials to see if it works. Until earlier this year, in, in, in 2023, July of 2023, ESI and Biogen, Biogen is the same company that produced aducanumab, but ESI, which is another pharma company, and Biogen, 
worked together on a drug called lecanemab, lecembi. And what they were able to show was that not only did lecembi lower beta amyloid levels in the brain, but it also slowed the cognitive decline, cognitive and functional decline compared to placebo in people with mild cognitive impairment or mild dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. And that was in July. So that's been big. Right. And so again, these drugs, at least what we're seeing, Mm they are more effective earlier rather than later. So that's one of the reasons why we want people to be more in tune with their brain health and cognitive function and maybe getting certain tests or whatever. But, you know, so I think that those are important, but also the slowing of the disease, or as you said, the the prevention, and that's, that's a big part of it because everybody kind of progresses at their own individual levels through the disease. Some can be very swift, some are a little slower, but this would hopefully help that slowing process while we're still searching for other cures and things. One of the questions you brought, or one question I have that you brought up from earlier, well, a lot of people are really interested in some of the new diagnostics. You mentioned the blood test. Yeah. I know also we've seen some things with eye exams where looking at the back of the retina and the blood vessels in the eye can sometimes help with diagnoses of Alzheimer's disease. Can you speak to a little bit of that? Because I know people are really interested in other types of tests, maybe beyond the PET scans, that would help them see if they might have a dementia or a risk factor. Yeah. So uh, this is a really exciting, we're at a really exciting place in this aspect as well. As you mentioned, these eye tests, I don't know much about them, but we have all different types of biomarkers that we're exploring. So, you know, we have a group of scientists that are studying treatments. We also have a group of scientists that are studying what are the predictors of this disease or what are the early markers of this disease? Um, So things like imaging in the brain, MRI, PET scans, right? But also blood tests and looking at all different types of markers in the blood, eye exams, writing styles, digital biomarkers, things like that. So there's been an explosion in the field. Probably one that we thought was going to come on a little bit slower are these blood tests. So traditionally, we've had two ways of looking at detecting Alzheimer's disease pathologically. One has been through cerebrospinal fluid collection, looking at the proteins that are in that fluid that sort of coat the brain. We can we can take that safely and examine it. And then the other one is through these PET scans where we take images of the brain. Both of those carry risks and may not be as widely as accepted or available as we'd like them to be. So in the last five years, we've seen sort of these blood tests come online. Now there's a huge caveat with this. We saw approval of a drug, uh, not a drug, sorry, of a test by a company called C2N. I think I'm getting that right. That helps aid a clinician in the diagnostic process sort of ruling out whether Alzheimer's disease is the cause of someone's cognitive symptoms, right? So it's best used as part of a diagnostic workup. 
And so this has been great because it means that some people might not need to go through a PET scan or they might not need to get the lumbar puncture in order to determine whether Alzheimer's disease might be causing their cognitive symptoms. We've also seen approval of just recently a blood test from Quest. And Quest is offering this blood test at a reasonable cost for anyone to look at whether they might have some of these proteins in their blood. Now, we're a bit apprehensive about this, this blood test. We think that it should be used in the context of a clinical workup and really for people experiencing symptoms. So that's important. Now, I will say that what's really neat is that even though this Quest test exists, we also are testing whether we can look at whether these proteins are present in the brain or these compounds are present in the brain in the in the blood in people before they might develop symptoms. But this is occurring as part of our clinical trials. So what we've been able to do is leverage these clinical trials to also see whether these blood tests might be appropriate in a preclinical population. Again, these these participants who are have plaques and tangles in their brain, but don't yet have clinical symptoms. Right. Well, and I, I know I didn't send this to you, so I thought this isn't a curveball, but you know, I know a lot of our listeners are listening to these types of tests and listening to even before you have symptoms, maybe, you know, there's testing or you can get involved in the clinical trials. A lot of people often ask, is there a genetic link? to Alzheimer's. If my mom or my grandmother had it, does it mean I have a higher risk factor? Can you just touch on that for our audience? Sure. Yeah, Sherry, this is not a curveball. We get this question pretty commonly. So what we now know is about 50% of our risk is environmental. And we think about 50% of our risk is genetic. And for the vast majority of us, that means that we might have a genetic profile where we get some types of genes that increase our risk a little bit and some genes that maybe lower our risk a little bit. So to answer your question, yes, if your mom or your grandmother or your grandfather or your sister or brother have the disease, you're at greater risk of getting the disease. But that doesn't mean you're going to get the disease. What it means, yeah, it just means that you might be at an increased risk. But we also know that these environmental factors, diet, sleep, medication use, pollutants, hearing loss, all also contribute to our risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, and I I love that you touched on the hearing loss because I, I know that that's really gotten a lot of focus lately. And a lot of older adults who may not be managing their hearing loss and getting the hearing aids that they need are also putting themselves then at risk for yeah. developing maybe dementia. Well, that's helpful because I think a lot of people do worry about this genetic connection. And mm-hmm. as you said, your risk might be higher, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get it. But let's let's segue now into family caregivers because we know that there is more intense burden on family members who have a loved one with dementia just because if we want to keep them at home, there's a lot of different challenges, different things we need to think about. Mm -hmm. And we're also thinking about our own brain health as well. What are the types of things that the ADRCs are doing that support or help the families of people who have dementia? 
Yes, I'm glad you mentioned this. So as I said, we're primarily a research organization. However, different ADRCs operate differently. So they might provide some diagnostics. As part of our longitudinal study, our participants kind of learn about their status. So diagnostics, we all offer a lot of education. And I want to get to that because that's that's a big part of what we do and what I do specifically. There is also associated with some of these ADRCs caregiver support and the opportunity to get involved in in clinical trials. And we can talk about clinical trials a little bit more going on here, but for education, we have a lot of opportunities. So we do, we have conferences, annual research conferences that we put on. We have a blog post that keeps people up to date on what's happening in the field, kind of go into more detail than what I'm talking about here. Um, We have Ask the Doc panel. So we go out into the community and we bring our experts in the field and they sit down and just answer questions that people might have about, hey, I'm experiencing these symptoms. Is this problematic? Or, you know, I need to get a, a will or a power of attorney in place. How might I do that? Or what's happening in stem cell research, right? These are all important questions that we want to engage with our community about. But then I would say, one benefit of the pandemic, if you if there was is a benefit of the pandemic, is that we were able to move to a more online platform. We haven't taken away any of our in-person activities, but we've been able to engage our online community with something that we call Mindcast. So Mindcast is really neat because people don't need to leave their house and they can learn a lot about what's happening in our field, what's happening for caregivers, what's happening at UCI Mind. And we have basically what Mindcast is, is a media platform. We have four different sort of short video clips that we offer where people can learn more about what's happening here, meet our team, learn about how they could be the solution, right? We also have this Ask the Doc online live stream that we do. These are 30 minute episodes where like I, I'm one of the hosts and I also have a co-host. We bring on experts in sleep to talk about the link between sleep and Alzheimer's disease, experts in Down syndrome. So we now know that people with Down syndrome are at significantly greater risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. So we want to learn about how these people live, right? Right and how to prevent the disease in in this group. So we have really fascinating discussions. And the best part is that our audience can ask questions, real-time questions, right? And then to me, the jewel of this whole Mindcast is our caregiver podcast. It's called Spotlight on Care. And This is hosted not by me because I don't have much experience as a caregiver. It's hosted by two past caregivers who are huge advocates of UCI Mind. And they go on and interview other caregivers to get insights about caring for people with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. But they also bring on attorneys and hospice nurses to get expert advice on what are the next steps? What do I need to prepare for? What does the dying process look like? Or how do I set up a power of attorney, a living will, that type of thing? We also have physicians to talk about the genetics. Mm-hmm. So it's a really powerful podcast. You can listen to these audio files while you're gardening, while you're cooking. While you're, it's a great opportunity. 
your audience knows how podcasts work. And so, so this like, like yours is, is very similar. Right. Well, and it sounds like you've got multi-media ways for people to engage. And and can I also just ask, I mean, obviously you're going to, Yeah, so I want to touch on two things. One, our online media platforms, newsletter, blog posts, even our research conference, because it's done a hybrid now, is available for everyone to listen to, to watch. So yes, it's broadly available. One thing I want to bring back to our ADRCs is that these are, again, a national network of centers. And so What's the most powerful component about the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center is that, you know, we have 300 people enrolled in our study. So we can answer a research question that we might have or we might allow other people to ask, right? But what's more powerful is that we enroll people across the country to enroll in their ADRCs so that we contribute data, our 300 people, everyone else's group of people that they, they contribute, right? So then now we're looking at a more representative sample of the US to examine Alzheimer's disease in sort of a broader population. And we're also able to not just ask research questions in 300 people, but we're able to ask and answer research questions in 10,000 people. So we have more sensitive results. We can ask more questions. We can get better answers uh, for those questions. And that's the beauty of technology. Sometimes I, I feel like technology has taken over our lives, but there are some good things out there that technology is definitely delivering for all of us. Well, Megan, this has just been so insightful. I think our audience is probably transfixed with all the things they can learn. You know, we're just on the cusp of really understanding brain health and how our brains work and certainly you know, issues like dementia and Alzheimer's. Is there anything we didn't cover? Anything else important you want to share with our audience? I'd love to. Um, you can see I don't have a problem talking. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can do this as a two-hour podcast, actually. <laughs> about the, right? yeah. We could. Okay. So I talked a bit about treatments and advances in in treatments. I think what's important, there's a couple things. One is we have treatments, we have diagnostics, we have care. What's come online as a result of these things is now CMS is saying, we're going to start covering these things to various extents. So this will make these treatments, diagnostic and care programs available to more people, which is fantastic because you had asked about the costs. Aducanumab originally came in, I think, at $60,000 a year, some, somewhere around that. And that didn't even include the test required to determine whether you had Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease, right? Very expensive. Lacanumab, when it was first given FDA approval, ESI and Biogen estimated a cost of about $28,000, right? Right. CMS came in and said, well, these this for Lakembi, this drug appears to have a clinical benefit. So we're going to cover it. I think it's about 
to cover these drugs, but that didn't include the testing required to be prescribed the drug that says, yes, the reason why you're experiencing cognitive symptoms is because of Alzheimer's disease. CMS now, just as of last Friday, I think, said, we're going to start covering the PET scans required to, to diagnose this disease. So that's been monumental. That's huge. Yeah. Yes. It's great. Now, what I will say is with this huge monumental year, we're not where we need to be. Lakembi isn't the answer to cure the disease. It won't even stop or slow the onset of the disease. There's a lot of work to be done. We need to make sure that we have safer, more effective drugs to, to, to slow the disease. We need to make sure that those drugs are accessible to more people. We need better diagnostics, lower burden, more accessible diagnostic tools. We need expanded care programs. And so because of that, we need to do a lot of research to get there. So we still need people. And as you had mentioned, we're, we really need to study this disease in a preclinical phase before people are experiencing symptoms. So we actually at UCI Mind, we're looking at Lakembi or Lakanumab in people in this preclinical phase. Okay. And so what we want to see is whether mm -hmm. this drug could be safe and effective in people before they develop symptoms with the hopes that maybe we can slow or stop the onset. Right. So what's interesting to me about that is looking at, as you said, the prevention of the disease even beginning, while we're still also looking for cures for people who have it already, that maybe we we can help with that. So it's on both ends, if you will, of the spectrum, which is great. But we're kind of coming up against our time limit here. But uh, Megan, this has just, again, been fascinating, so insightful and so helpful, I think, for our audience to really understand more about what's going on. And and it's exciting to have an ADRC, like I said, in my backyard and and then everybody has access to what you're doing. Where can our listeners find you and, and find the information from UCI Mind and the ADRC here in Southern California? Yeah. So the best way to get to learn more is to visit our website. So mind.uci.edu, M-I-N-D.uci.edu. To learn more about that prevention study or secondary prevention study, go to aheadstudy.org, ahead. And then to learn more about our podcast, Spotlight on Care, just spotlightoncare.com. And then you can also contact me. So uh, I'll give you my, my email address. I'm happy to answer any questions, direct people. I'm M-W-I-T-B-R-A-C at uci.edu. Wonderful. Wow. Okay, guys, you have access to Megan. This is huge. This is valuable. So if you've got any questions, you know, I, I know she can help, you know, guide you and all that. But thank you so much, Megan, for all of this. We'll have all of those links on our episode guide page. And it's just, it's really been wonderful having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. This is a great podcast. So weren't there some really great insights from Megan showing you how these ADRCs across the country and otherwise can really help out our family caregivers in local communities? And, you know, since it's the holidays are coming up and we talk a little bit about family conversations, I actually do a whole separate webinar for my employer clients on how to have 
the family conversations around the holidays and what are the red flags and signs that we look for that maybe our older parents or grandparents are needing more help at home. But I wanted to do something specific that I thought was really important. It's actually included in my book, which is Me Time Monday, the weekly wellness plan to find balance and joy for a busy life. And it's it's kind of around conversations. It's a, it's a really an education factor for families who have a loved one with dementia. And it's something called terminal lucidity. And if you haven't heard of that term, some people call it what's called the rally. And what happens is in the course of this neurodegenerative disease of Alzheimer's, the person may hit point in the later stages of the disease where all of a sudden they are very lucid, they are focused, they have almost, you know, a lot of their memory back in a lot of ways. And it's a really and you know, a straddling kind of situation for a lot of families because the hope that, oh my gosh, you know, they've gotten past it. Well, first of all, I don't want to bring anyone down, but we know there's no cure for Alzheimer's. And so what I wanted to do is just give an explanation as to what is going on. We don't know exactly why this happens and it doesn't happen with every single adult who has Alzheimer's. But if you have a point in your loved one's you know, end stage of the disease, where all of a sudden they know who you are again, they seem very clear on certain things and certain memories. You just want to be mindful of the fact that this this phenomenon called terminal lucidity actually means that your loved one is entering the final stage of the disease. It could take days, it could take weeks, sometimes even some, you know, a period of months. But it does mean that your loved one is probably very soon going to pass. And again, I don't want to sound like a downer on this, but it's something to just be aware of because it can send this burst of hope and then it becomes very depressing because you do lose your loved one very soon after that episode has occurred. And, you know, depression is something that we talked about in our last episode. It's somewhat related to the loneliness factor that I wanted to get into a little bit. But anyway, hopefully that gives you some insights as to, you know, the 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 nuances of this disease, which are so different from a lot of other roles that we play as caregivers of someone with heart disease or cancer or other things like that. So let me talk a little bit now about, you know, the loneliness factor, because again, the holidays can mean for many of us, family celebrations, getting together with friends, but for a lot of people, it's a very lonely time. And loneliness, as we talked about before, is about the quality of your relationships. Now, I thought that this was really interesting. And I'm going to write a blog post on this. But, you know, Matthew Perry, the wonderful comedic actor who recently lost his life at only, I think he was only 54 years old, which to me sounds young now. I think it was close to my age. But, you know, he he had so many brilliant gifts, but he also struggled with addiction. And he talked about it in his recent book, And we know there's a lot of people out there who do struggle with addiction. We're going to talk in the Well Home Design News block about veterans and homeless vets. And a lot of them are, again, struggling with those types of addiction to drugs or alcohol. But he really contributed a lot of it to loneliness. And this means the quality of your relationships are not there. It doesn't mean you're alone because, you know, somebody like him, I'm sure he had an entourage around him. He certainly had, you know, colleagues and peers in the Hollywood community uh, and and his family as well. He had a, you know, it seems like he had a very supportive family, but somehow we're not finding the sustenance that we need. And this, this happens to a lot of people. It's also, as we know, loneliness is a risk factor for a lot of different 
health ailments, ailments, and including Alzheimer's disease later in life. It could be a risk factor if you're chronically lonely. So I have something in my book called the social convoy model. It's a great time of year to think about this. And there's a little visual map in the book that you can use, but it's where you put yourself in the center. And then you draw circles around yourself. You have an inner circle, a middle circle, and an outer circle. You plot people onto your circles. But it really visualizes for you who is really there for you, who's the person you can call at 3 a.m. versus maybe somebody that is going to be there for you, but not always, you know, maybe they're just a good friend to go for a walk with or something, but they're not going to be there for the times that are really, really tough. But it, what it does is it really helps us evaluate the quality of our relationships. Be realistic because, listen, there are people we may want to count on. And we shouldn't. We can't be unrealistic about our expectations because that sets us up for depression and for anger and for all of those, you know, horrible emotions that we don't want to have. So, you know, using this this map, I think, really helps. And hopefully the whole conversation that I have in the book around social convoys and loneliness will also help you as well. Um, but we do know that it's something that's really important. And we also know that younger generations are feeling lonely. And part of this is because a lot of the younger generations have used social media like TikTok and Instagram to replace their human connections. So now all of their connections are what we call URL. Okay. They're, they're digital and they may feel like they have a relationship or a good friend online or via TikTok or all the fans that are liking their TikTok videos. These are not real. Okay. And it could give you a quick little boost of dopamine, which is the reward center of the brain which is one of those feel-good, I, I talk about the four feel-good hormones. Dopamine is one. Oxytocin is another. You don't get oxytocin, by the way, from social media. Oxytocin is our love-trust bonding hormone. Endorphins is our pain relief hormone, and serotonin is our mood boost hormone. Well, you really don't get those last three. You might get a dopamine burst from your social media likes and shares and, you know, TikTok fans. But what we really need is the in-person relationships, the IRLs in real life. And this is so critical for all of us, but particularly for our younger generations, we've got to encourage these human connections because the lack of human connection is creating our anguish in our society. And, you know, we are social animals. We only survive because we bond together with people of like minds or like cultures or or whatever it is, like interests, whatever it is, we form these these tribes and these clubs. There's a great documentary coming out next year called Join or Die. And it's all about the need, particularly also for older adults who might feel, again, that they are lonely. Maybe they've lost some close friends or lost their spouse or partner and, you know, they're needing to reconnect socially. But we've got to do it in person. And we learned some really bad habits, I hate to say, through the pandemic when we socially isolated. Not good. I know. I know people say, yeah, but we had to survive. Well, you might think you're surviving, but if you keep that up, you won't survive because we need the in-person connection. So I can't, I can't make that strong enough. And the holidays are a perfect time for us to have those reconnections. Make sure you do it in real life as much as you can. Get together with friends. Don't do things on Zoom. Don't do things that are just social media shares. Get back to what we really, what the sustenance that we really need 
for our social fitness and overall for our wellness and well-being. So anyway, that's my little lecture for today on caregiver wellness. But also I wanted to do a quick shout out to, we're going to do our annual, um, it's actually our third annual holiday gift guide is on our next episode, our early December episodes. You don't want to miss that. I also am going to do a webinar on all the great gift ideas that we have. And you can go back and check out you know, our first annual guide and our second annual guide, because those gifts are still really relevant, really great too. But I want to do a shout out to one company, Harry and David, but I was recently brought to my attention that they created a whole campaign for National Caregiver Month around caring for the caregivers. So they have these wonderful food baskets and other things that you can do to show your appreciation for, whether it's the professional care worker in your life that's helping you out to care for your mom or dad or grandparents, or whether it's you as the family caregiver, you're a sibling or a friend, and you just want to say, hey, you know what? I appreciate what you're doing. And it's such a gift that you're giving. Think about that. And, and a shout out again, kudos to Harry and David for being one of those those leaders among those retail brands and companies in terms of recognizing our 53 million unpaid, overlooked family caregivers in the U.S. We really appreciate it, Harry and David. And thank you for, for the great support. So now I want to go into my second interview which is with Neil Shaw. As I mentioned, I recently met Neil and he is the CEO and founder of Care Yaya. I think you're going to really find this interesting because he has kind of come up with this really innovative, different model of home care. So when we need help bringing a professional care worker into the home to care for again, mom or dad, in-laws, you know, favorite aunt, grandparents, whomever it is that is an older adult, he has got a different way to do this. And I think you're really going to want to pay attention because I think this is really interesting and it actually winds up helping two generations at once. So with that, I will tease up my interview with Neil Shaw of Care Yaya. So I am really excited to have our next guest on who is Neil Shaw, the founder of Care Yaya. And you're going to learn some really interesting things about his innovative approach to try to take care of our older loved ones at home. So, Neil, welcome to Caregiving Club on Air. Sherry, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, of course. I was really excited that you reached out and we're learning a little bit more about each other because I really do think what you're doing is is quite unique. But the first question I always ask all of our guests is, where are we talking to you from today? Sure. We are speaking from Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, right outside of the Raleigh-Durham area. Wonderful. And, and we love that. We love the North Carolina area. It's beautiful. So you Thanks. Know, Thanks. one of the things that is so important, I think if my statistics are right, we have at least 12 million older adults who are being cared for at home. We know that number is going to grow exponentially where we have people who are living longer over the next few decades. And that makes the support for family caregivers of getting home care professionals into the home to provide both respite for the caregiver, but also, you know, self-care, social interactions for older adults becomes even more important. And that's really where your focus talks a little bit about the unique approach that Care Yaya takes and why, why you started this company. Yeah, thanks for the question, Sherry. So it's actually quite deeply personal. So I'm now in my early 40s. And prior to this, I actually had a career in business and investment management. And I actually found myself in my 30s, unexpectedly, like most people do, becoming a family caregiver, actually twice within a matter of two years. So to kind of give you a really quick background on myself, I grew up in North Carolina, later went to Penn and was working on Wall Street, 
you know, was kind of like a finance whiz kid. And by my late 20s, I became a partner at a multi-billion dollar investment firm. And then by my early 30s, I started my own investment firm, which I grew from initially 10 million of investments to 250 million by 35. And I was like very much like hardworking, interested in healthcare technology as an investor in businesses. And, you know, just like really loved what I was doing. And then literally within a matter of um, a couple of years in my mid-30s, I really got like punched in the face with caregiving. You know, it, it happens to you. You know, initially my grandfather became severely ill. So to care through dementia, cancer, kidney failure, and end-of-life care. There, I would admittedly say I was helping. Uh, I wasn't primary, but I saw my mother take the majority of the caregiving responsibility. And that was my first, you know, kind of opened my eyes to how broken the care industry was and how if you couldn't get good, reliable care, the family would feel guilty and end up doing it themselves. So we spent a lot of time doing the care by ourselves, you know, which we thought was like our duty and, you know, something we really wanted to do. And then right as that ended, my wife became severely ill and went through multiple years of uh, cancer treatment, multiple failed therapies. At one point it was in ICU, at one point it was in a medical coma and I was primary caregiver. And that was my second introduction of any attempt to try to outsource care was met with very low quality and reliability, a lot of guilt of like, why shouldn't I do this? And then I basically became primary caregiver while managing fairly intense work. Now I'm actually at the midway through that, I ended up walking away from my career to do it full time. You know, so it was a very, very difficult and emotionally and physically draining experience. Pleased to say not everybody is so fortunate, but knock on wood, actually finally had a successful outcome. And, you know, now she's been in remission for a few years. And at that point, I had experienced such a difficult journey of doing care that I became obsessed with the industry and how many people are dealing with it. I, I would say I kind of woke up, you know, in the middle of my life to kind of how challenging this is for how many people. And, you know, just was thought, okay, why don't I, I you know, it kind of reduced the meaning of the work I was doing previously and gave a new meaning to something else that I should put my brain and energy to fixing this and building a better system. So that was the genesis of starting Carrie and I love that passion. You know, you obviously had a very personal experience. I'm so glad to hear that your wife is is better because those journeys are really tough. And as you said, we come into it in a crisis. We're not prepared. We don't know where to turn. And even when we do get into it, it's a very fragmented system, as you've kind of discovered. What I love about what you've created with Care Yaya is there are other home care agencies out there. And, you know, they have different types of approaches or whatever. But you've taken a really interesting approach by using, if I understand it correctly, medical students. So tell us a little bit about how this is really innovative and what what is the mission and the and the purpose behind doing that? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Sherry. There were like there were several gaps in the care industry that I kind of observed. And I was like, how can you do something to address those gaps? But really I'd say if you had to kind of summarize, it was affordability quality and convenience of finding care, all of those were problems, you know? So I thought that the current care industry is very much hyper-localized, pen and paper, call someone, they kind of come to you, visit you, then you have to sign contracts. It's very expensive in our area. It's pushing now $35 per hour just to even get kind of companion level care help. So affordability is a big problem. Quality is a huge problem. You know, reliability of the care industry is, I just hate to say, fairly poor. In our area, something like 15 to 20% of appointments are no-shows or multiple hours late, which puts a lot of pressure on family caregiver because they can't predict and plan their own lives. And then also convenience, the inconvenience of booking. So I thought all those problems could be addressed intelligently through technology. Uh, to add, you know, kind of icing to the cake, if you will, not that it's a great cake, there's a massive caregiver shortage in society. And our yes. population is aging faster and there's more health um, needs and more home care needs. And the caregiver population is trending in the other direction. So 
you know, we thought, okay, how can we bring innovation to this? So in doing Karyaya, there was a observation that there's a large pool of extremely talented and great, well-intentioned caregivers who are all students who want to go into the healthcare field. So think about our future doctors, nurses, you know, physician assistants, physical therapists of tomorrow. <laughs> they really have a predominantly non-monetary incentive to provide care. You know, they really view this as learning and preparation for future clinical careers. They are not engaged by the care industry. We saw many of these wonderful students get rejected by local care agencies because they can't commit to fixed hours. You know, so in our area, for example, there's two great universities within 15 minutes here, Duke University and UNC Chapel Hill. You'd have a senior at these places that's pre-med, that's 3.9 GPA, great student, you know, going to be a doctor one day, apply to care agencies and get rejected because why? They can't do fixed 30, 40 hours a week schedule. So we're like, okay, if we create a gig economy platform for them, similar to kind of Uber or DoorDash, you know, believe it or not, one of the more popular things at UNC Nursing School is that people do DoorDash, food delivery. So we're like, couldn't believe it, you know, that these are wonderful students. They're going into caring fields. They would love to do this type of work. So if you just build something for them, you can engage them and expand the care workforce. So that was kind of the original genesis of it. So we built a, you know, Uber or DoorDash-like technology platform, you know, online booking, scheduling, algorithms for matching. And, you know, we kind of beta tested in our area at like UNC and Duke initially had like, you know, five, 10, 20 people on it. And pleased to say after a couple of years of working really hard on it, suddenly it's become an overnight success. And now we have 5,000 students across 20 universities. And we think this could revolutionize caregiving and spread all over the country with concerted effort over the next year or two. Yeah. And, you know, what I, I, I worked at an academic medical center out in Southern California, which is where I am. And one of the yeah. things that always blew my mind, because I've been in the aging caregiving space now for about 20 years, is that most of the students yeah. had a mandatory pediatric rotation to really care for children, but not a mandatory pediatric mm. rotation to look about caring for adults. You know, we're going to yeah. have more plants and grandparents to care for than children over yeah. the next, you know, 20, yeah. 25 years. I love that yep. you're kind of you're yep. talking about rotation to these healthcare professionals to have them become not just more, you know, educated, but I think also empathetic to our our, our aging population, which I love. You talk about 100%. The, the core thing that really works for you is that intergenerational relationships. Tell me a little bit more about how Care Yaya is really creating those. Yeah, great question. I mean, think about, you know, your average 22-year-old in society. How many times do you think in the last year have they interacted with anybody above 70 that's not their own direct grandparent? You know, probably close to zero. You know, if you survey 100 people of that age, you know, maybe once or twice somebody's interacted with a grandparent's friends. So thankfully through Karyaya, that's actually all they're doing. So we are facilitating a tremendous amount of intergenerational relations. And I think that's something that, you know, think about this um, a lot in the history of like, let's just say American society, that's something that used to be much more prevalent three or four generations ago when mm. grandparents, parents, and children typically lived within the same town or region and had a lot of interaction with each other and then kind of broader network of friends and relatives. And I think with kind of what's happened over the last like 30, 40 years, people are all over the place. Sons and daughters move away, then grandkids move away somewhere else for school. You have this lack of intergenerational relationship. And you know, I think that has resulted in, and I think the former Surgeon General, Dr. Murthy, has been doing this book tour talking about loneliness as an epidemic. And I think that the U.S. is the last to see this. They're talking about this in the U.K., all over Europe, and frankly, all over Asia, where there's a social isolation and lack of companionship in the aging population, but equally, if not young population, you know, you see the mental health statistics. So we thought that, okay, why not facilitate and foster a meaningful co connections? And frankly, 
it's not just one way. You know, I think that's the really interesting thing that it's not just the student is caring for an older person in their community. It's two way. They're getting a lot of mentorship. They're getting a lot of purpose. They're getting a lot of meaning. And I think this is the way it should be. And I feel like society has kind of lost sight of that in the last few decades where everybody's just busy doing their own thing. But I think that that's probably the most fun aspect of what we're doing at Carrier is to, you know, connect younger people with older people in their community and develop mutually beneficial relationships. I think the students are getting just as much out of it from a mental health and purpose and meaning as the older adults are. Both are able to keep each other company, help each other. And I think it's just been it's been awesome to see. You know, I, I can't yeah. wait till this scales nationwide and, you know, makes changes the way society thinks about aging. You know, I think, you know, America is a very youth obsessed society. And I think if you have younger people spending time with older people, not just in a clinical setting, but like in a home setting, you really get to know them. You get to see the joys of their lives, the challenges of their lives. You know, you get to help them. You get to interact with the family. I think there's just like, yeah, it really builds a lot of empathy. And, you know, I think, yeah, hopefully we can make like a really cool social impact as we scale this program and build a lot of relationships that otherwise wouldn't have been built. And what I love about this is that, you know, as you mentioned, there's so many scientific studies out there about, you know, grandparents interacting with grandchildren and how both generations benefit. Grandchildren become more resilient, have a better sense and grounding of who they are and where they came from. Grandparents are kind of energized. They get that energy vibration off of being with grandkids and it kind of opens their eyes to new technology and new things going on. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think this whole empathy, you know, one of the things that's always talked about that's missing in healthcare is kind of this looking at the person, not just the physical ailment or disability or disease, which needs to be treated. It's more about who is this person? What is that holistic look? And I, I think what you're doing is really helping our healthcare professionals that approach, have that empathy for older adults, you know, which is, which is so critical. Thousand percent. Yeah. I'm so glad you yeah. mentioned that actually, because as an alternate to Karyaya, Many of the students would be doing volunteer rotations at the hospital or becoming a certified nurse aide at the hospital. And that is the number one thing that they said. Some of them have done that and then still opted to do Karyaya. And they've said, when I work at Duke Hospital, I, I go 15 minutes, 15 minutes, 15 minutes. I'm thinking about the person as what ailment they have. I don't get right. to know the person at all. I don't get to spend right. weeks with them, hours with them. I don't get to know them for months. I don't get to know their family. So you're totally right. I think the current way of healthcare, if you're a young student, you're introducing into the field, you're just starting to think of people as this is the disease they have or the affliction or what they're currently going through. And I think through this kind of like one-on-one -on -one companionship, you're getting to know the kind of well-rounded picture of the person where they're not just, okay, this um, Susan has dementia. That's not the definition of Susan. She also has a very rich life story. You learn about her. She has a very kind of like interesting family history. You know, you kind of learn everything about it where it's like, the disease doesn't define the person. And I think that's really important uh, to build in yeah. just young people in general, certainly young people who are going to become healthcare workers later. So yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, I touched upon this too, because we see a lot of the surveys are showing us that there's, you know, higher prevalence now of mental health issues within our younger generations. And sometimes that's because they don't have a sense of meaning. And so when some of these younger healthcare professionals can walk into a home and see the older person light up and be so delighted that they want somebody to talk to. I mean, that really feels, I think, it gives you a sense of really accomplished something wonderful today, right? I really added some value back into, into this world. You know, one of the things that we hear a lot from family caregivers is that older adults 
have privacy means, and they don't want a quote-unquote stranger coming into the home, or the other adult may feel like, I don't need care, I'm fine. And yet, the same caregiver is like, I don't want to leave my mom or my dad alone at home, I need to have this help. Even if it's just a companionship. Talk to me a little bit about it. How, how do you, do you see that, first of all, and how do you overcome that? Great question. So we see that actually quite frequently. A lot of kind of one of the biggest things we see is the, what would be kind of the adult children of aging parents have a lot of difficult conversations when somebody has an early or even kind of mid-stage diagnosis of Alzheimer's or dementia and, you know, the son or daughter who often might be living somewhere else or might be busy with their own career, standard generation, you know, have their own kids, have their own career, or now thinking about their parent, has a difficulty socializing care. I think partly it's because of the way the care industry is currently structured, you know, not, no, not to knock anyone, but most of these care agencies, it's very clear from the receip- the receiver of the care that okay, my family is paying somebody who is only here because they're being paid. The care worker may not even really want to be there. And I think that makes the uh, older adult feel like I'm a burden on my family. And why is this person around? Like, I don't need to be babysat. So I think that the cool thing about Karyaya is like that a lot of the adult children of aging parents are effectively saying, you are mentoring this student, you know, that this person is here to help you keep you company, but they're also here to learn from you. And I think that the, to go back to the prior topic on intergenerational relationship, but how it ties into this is that I actually think that the older adult feels like this is a mutual relationship, not just that this person is here to take care of me because I need to be taken care of, but I'm also here to teach them. And I think that becomes way easier to socialize. So I think that's like pretty cool. You know, it's like if you think about if any of your listeners are out there who are like midlife, like I am, you know, and you're talking to your parents about like the need for care. Imagine convincing them and arguing with them to use like a local care agency where they're going to send like a care worker who may or may not want to be there versus imagine telling your parents who are in their 70s or 80s that, okay, a nearby college student who might be like your grandson or granddaughter is coming to hang out with you and learn from you. I mean, it's just like night and day, you know, in terms of socializing the care. So yeah, Yeah. I, I find that to be like one of the cool points that we see families using. You tapped into something brilliant, which is kind of the psychology. As a gerontologist, I look a lot at biology, psychology, and sociology, but the psychology of an older adult wanting to stay relevant, wanting to contribute, and yet when you say we're going to have a caregiver come in, it makes them feel vulnerable. It makes them feel like, you know, I'm, I'm just frail and, you know, need to be cared for. You flip that script. You've made them now, you know, given older adults a purpose. We're going to help this person who's going to go out into the world and and be in healthcare, learn a little bit more. I love that. I think that that whole psychology is great. And I think it's a great tip for a family caregiver that they're listening to use with your parents, making a role and a purpose in having this younger person come in and care for them. You know, you touched upon something, Neil, when we were talking earlier about Obviously, the cost of care, a lot of these services are out of pocket or what we call, you know, fee-for-service. Fee and the inflation, I mean, you know, we're trying like buy gas, groceries, hardware kind of slips off the list and we just say, we'll just do it ourselves or we'll figure it out or whatever it is. How, how are you addressing that with Care Yaya and what do you see in terms of the cost of care? Give us a sense of what the outlay is for families and how they're, how they're able to accomplish this. So I'll I'll be full transparent. I don't want to offend anyone listening, but I think that the care agency system is completely broken and it's like dead man walking. They are charging absurd rates to these families for care and they are paying the caregivers nothing. 
So in North Carolina, where we are, but I think this is reflective of everywhere, pretty much, the average care agency-based care is $30 to $35 an hour, and the average caregiver pay in our state is $11.50 per hour. I mean, talk about like literally the majority of the money is going to middleman fees, administrative overhead, profit margin, advertising, just kind of total waste, right? So most families, as you can imagine, can't afford that. That system is really optimized for like top one to 5% of society. And even those people don't have a great experience, to be honest, because the caregiver's not getting paid anything. And then everybody's complaining the caregiver's unmotivated. It's like, well, look what you're paying them. No wonder. So we thought that the whole system was broken. So we took the extreme opposite position, which we'll, we'll see from a sustainability standpoint, you know, knock on wood, we have to figure that out. We run the whole thing for free. We don't charge the families a dime. We don't take a dime out of the caregiver's pocket. It's purely using technology, which we funded ourselves. Like initially, I was just like funding it myself. Then I was working with my colleague. And over time, we ended up getting some grants from organizations and some angels who have backed us. But we're basically rolling it in a very low cost way ourselves. And then we're giving it away for free. So families can book care through us and pay the caregiver directly. We eat all the costs in between. And we really believe in two social missions, which is having the caregivers earn more and having full price transparency. As a result, the care experience is better. The caregivers are very motivated. And then having the families pay as less as possible because we believe affordability, lack of access to care is a vital issue. And it's really a shame when you talk to the families and you see how many are priced out of it or how many are rationing the hours of care that they can get because at 30, 35 bucks an hour, people can't afford it. So that's our mission. And I mean, the impact is profound. You know, if you think about the average cost of care in our state at like 35 bucks an hour through agencies, most people can't afford that. You know, so there's like literally we started the program and we had full time working nurses and physician assistants at major hospital systems that were booking through us because they were like, well, if I have to book through a local care agency, um, I might as well just quit my job and do the care myself because right. I don't make enough, you know? And I think that that's a growing issue. So I think affordability and access to care is a huge societal issue. I also think that, frankly, you know, the way the care market developed in the US, you know, I think in the 1970s and 1980s, there was kind of like this implicit assumption that the agencies had made that Medicare and health insurance will never engage with us. So they never bothered to build something for the payer. They just bothered to build it for the private market and never bothered to build something of scale. And then same with like large corporate employers. So no one has built a really scale nationwide solution that's affordable and low cost and try to pursue kind of business to business arrangements. And I think that is one of the biggest opportunities in like what we're building is that I think that large corporate employers are realizing kind of like the way people realized 20 years ago, childcare was something that if you didn't help people through, you're going to have midlife people start burning out of the workforce in large numbers, you know, to take care of children. I think now as our population ages, large corporate employers are realizing, oh, wait, a lot of my employees are managing family care needs. And it's not child, it's aging parents or even spouse with serious illness. And a lot of those people are going to burn out of the workforce unless there's low cost models and there's models that employers um, do partnerships with and subsidize. So I think that's really our mission is that free to consumer, take nothing from caregivers, keep the cost low ourselves and grow it all over, and then hope that we can partner with institutions that realize they need to cover care needs of society because it's in their interest for the people that are their constituents. And hopefully one day ratchet it all the way up to government. You know, why doesn't Medicare, you know, I had a whole thing about this, but Medicare just rolled out coverage of Lakembi, the dementia drug. It's 20 grand a year. You know, I don't see, isn't there's not even a thousand dollars a year of caregiver support. So who made that decision? You know, no offense to anyone, but wouldn't it be nice if the family got to choose, I'll take 20 grand of caregiver support instead of 20 grand for a drug. You know, so I think that these are conversations that can happen on a national level if you build a low cost, high quality solution and scale it everywhere. 
Yeah. And I love your comment about the employers, too, because we're seeing, I mean, we know that one in six employees are caring for someone over the age of 50. One in three are caring yeah. for someone in their life. It could be a child, especially a child. It could be a grandparent or, you know, whatever. So I think it's it's becoming a workplace yeah. issue more and more. And the the kind of consistency, because, you know, what you're doing is you don't have a minimum. If you just need someone to come in for an hour or two, it sounds like you can get that off of your platform. You have confidence in the person coming in who has a healthcare background. So, you know, it's not just somebody maybe who hasn't had a whole lot of training. And then, you know, there's this whole kind of intergenerational connectivity, which is you mentioned that the U.S. is woefully behind. And you're right. I, in my latest book, Me Time Monday, I did a lot of research. And of course, the U.K. is is kind of way ahead of us in social prescriptions. Well, I think that's going to become yes. more and more of what we're going to look at because, yeah, it's really easy to give somebody a prescription for a drug or a pill or whatever. But what about a prescription for getting outside more or having these relationships with younger generations. I mean, do as much as Bell in some instances, you know? hundred percent. Actually, let me add one, one quick thing to that. So one thing we've rolled out and as, as the care force is skyrocketing now, as we're expanding at other universities around the country, we've now started rapidly developing tech projects to kind of add to the social connection of what's happening during the care session. So we've just rolled out a tech enabled artificial intelligence life story project that enables the student uh -huh. caregiver to be your digital biographer or autobiographer, depending on how you want to look at it. And you know, we were doing this manually where we were prompting them with questions that they would ask to engage the older adult in sharing their story. You know, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? What were your parents like? What were your grandparents like? You know, can you imagine all this rich tapestry of life stories that you could kind of learn? So the students were loving this as much as the older adults were loving it. And then the family members were loving it. Everybody was loving it, where families were like, wow, I'm learning so much about my mom or dad that the student is asking that I never knew. And yeah. unfortunate reality in some of the situations, you know, sometimes people would pass away and we would observe the students are invited to the funeral. And then the feedback we're getting from the son or daughter is like, wow, I never knew so much about my mom. So we realized, why don't we codify this? So we started building reminiscence therapy and life story digital applications and seeing the impact on that is unbelievable. And you're right. Like, why isn't there a social prescription? Because there's a improvement in mental health, but moreover, I would say there's actually a reduction in pain. And that's very interesting. I would have never expected that. So, you know, not to get too sad, but sometimes we take care of people who are in end of life, hospice, terminal cancer, and their pain levels are high uh, oftentimes. And there, there might need to be prescription medication to manage pain. And we have observed, and we're actually launching a study on this, but we have observed literally qualitative reports of reduction in pain of significant amounts from engaging in things like this, because it takes the mind off what is your negative about your current situation. It puts the mind into positive reminiscing about your life, about positive engagement, frankly, about even positive that reduction of anxiety, that oh. somebody's codifying my life in a digital format so other people might listen, including my own family and others, after I'm gone. And this has profound uh, impact on meaning, anxiety reduction, pain reduction, and it's not a pharmaceutical drug. You know, it doesn't harm anyone. So I think why isn't this stuff being prescribed? Great question. I love it. And these legacy products, as you said, that the talk about your legacy, talk about yeah. your, you know, your life journey are so powerful. And you're right. It, it's helping with depression and anxiety and pain relief. And, you know, the downstream effects of some of these mental health issues or emotional health issues of isolation and loneliness lead to things like heart disease and Alzheimer's and other issues yeah. that are big 
dollars being spent by our government to take care of those types of chronic illnesses. So, well, listen, we're, we're coming up on our time, but I just have loved our conversation. I think what you're doing is so wonderful. Tell us again. Now, I know that you're you're based in North Carolina and you started there, but you're now across several states. So tell us where you're at and what markets you're looking to go into so our listeners kind of have a sense of where they can find you. Sure. So we're at about 20 universities across the country. You know, we go university by university, you know, so we the coverage is within kind of like a half hour radius of major universities. Over the next year, the plan is to get to the top 50 universities across the country. I would say right now, our biggest presences are, you know, North Carolina, you know, UNC Chapel Hill, Duke. We're at Emory in Georgia. We're at UT Austin is where we expanded in Texas. We're at Harvard in Boston and Northeastern and Boston University. So Boston's a huge focus for us. We're on the verge of expanding to San Francisco area um, through Berkeley and also LA. We're likely expanding to UCLA and USC, likely Arizona My State. My alma mater. We so have to USC. Yeah, I, I remember, I remember <laughs> USC, yes. Huge, huge care opportunity there. Wow. So we actually have a backing from chairwoman of Scan Health Plan. Right. So we're, we're, we're kind of expanding all over to kind of top 25 and then top 50 universities across the country. And frankly, we're also expanding wherever there's inbound. So if people have interest and need care in a certain area, and you think there's like a good university nearby, we will happily chat with a few families and expand backwards because the product has gone viral. So you can reach out to us at www.careyaya.org, C-A-R-E-Y-A-Y-A.org, or you can email us at support at careyaya.org. And if you want us in your area, let us know. We're happy to build. But yeah, it's, it's really cool to see the impact. And we think we can get it everywhere pretty quickly. Absolutely wonderful. But I just I didn't ask you. So just really quickly, while we have just a couple of minutes or a couple of seconds left here, care sure. yaya. What what does the what does the term mean? What does the care yaya stand for? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So we wanted something kind of positive and playful. You know, it's like a tech enabled company, futuristic, and you know, a lot of times care is sad. So we didn't want to, you know, kind of we wanted something we want to bring positivity. So it's just the word yeah twice, but it's also yaya means grandmother in Greek. Yaya, the word means caregiver in Swahili and Thai. Uh, and also Yaya um, is the acronym for you are your advocate, which we believe is the future of self-directed care. So yeah, we thought it had multiple meanings and it was just positive and upbeat. So I love that. I love that it has all those connections. I have to tell you, as I've been saying it, where Yaya, I just feel happier. There's something that's kind of just boosting <laughs> <Thanks. in. laughs> Thank you. That was the intent. That was the intent. So I'm glad it worked. Well, Neil, thank you so much for being on. And and I know that our listeners are really going to learn a lot from all of your insights and your wonderful services. And we just really applaud what you're doing and look forward to your future success. Thank you again. Thank you, Sherry, for taking the time to learn about our story. And thank you for getting it out there to your listeners. So I really appreciate it. So wasn't that interesting learning about what Neil is doing with Care Yaya? Such a great concept and really excited to see how he's continues to expand this across the country so we can all tap into it. So now let's dive into our well-home design news. And as I mentioned, one of the things that we're focusing on, of course, is dementia and Alzheimer's for National Alzheimer's Awareness Month. I just want to do a quick shout out. I'm going to have another link on this particular episode guide page, similar to what we had last episode. I did a webinar for you guys on dementia-friendly design at home. And it's a it's a shortened version of a longer one that I do on overall universal design and, you know, other things to keep us in our homes as long and safe and independent as possible. But you're going to want to check that out because I think it's really helpful and it gives you some really great insights as to how the disease progresses and what to think about 
if we are trying to keep our loved ones at home who have Alzheimer's or dementia. So I'm going to have that link on the episode guide page. But I also mentioned that we're going to be talking about dementia travel. And, you know, this is a question that we get a lot around the holidays. Like, is it safe for me to travel with a loved one who has Alzheimer's? What do I need to think about? So a couple of things I wanted to share with you, and then I'll probably have some links to some resources. I'll, I'll tell you that the UK is leaps and bounds ahead of the US in terms of dementia travel. There's so many different organizations that are out there to help uh, British citizens to maintain, you know, their, their thriving uh, despite their diagnosis of dementia. So I might even include a couple of those because they're just good information. Or if you happen to be maybe thinking about international travel, you can tap into some of these great resources that are over there in the UK. But first of all, you want to plan ahead. I can't say enough. You really have to tap into calling the airports and talking to the people who do special travel needs, you know, talking to the hotel that you're going to be staying at or the resort and figuring out what are ways that you can help your loved one, what's going to keep them safe, you know, all of these different things. There's a great story in my first book, by the way, A Cast of Caregivers, where I interviewed Sylvia Mackey, who is the wife of John Mackey, who played in the NFL back in the 60s and 70s. He was a Super Bowl hero, and he played for the Baltimore Colts for most of his career. But Sylvia tells a really great story about trying to survive a trip through the airport with her husband, who had frontotemporal dementia at the time, and how when he saw... The TSA, you know, the where we have to go through the monitors or whatever, and you walk through that kind of what do you, what do you call it? I can't gosh, I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, you walk through the bars, you know, the metal detector type bars, right? He thought it was the goalposts on a football field, so he goes running and charging ahead, and he's going to make the touchdown. Meanwhile, the TSA agents are freaking out, trying to. First huge, big, you know, guy, this football player down on the ground. Anyway, it was very traumatizing for Sylvia. And when she told the story, it now sounds funny, but obviously you can imagine for a war being in the airport trying to deal with all this. And it's a really great story. And, you know, go back and read it in my book. I've also written some articles about Sylvia for PBS Next Avenue. But what it tells you is how much we have to think through the differences of traveling with someone with dementia and how they see travel and the world and how we see it. So definitely plan ahead, tap into all the resources you got. Try to maintain schedules as much as possible. It's really difficult if you're on vacation or you're going again to a resort, you've got all these different things under your itinerary, but you want to try to keep the routines, the eating at the same time, uh, taking rests when you need it. And by the way, rests and getting breaks are really important because we don't have the stamina an older adult with dementia doesn't have the same stamina to get through the day and get through an exhaustive travel schedule as they may have. So we have to be mindful of all of those little respite breaks for both our low end and for ourselves. Bring a comfort source because again, it's very disconcerting for someone with Alzheimer's to be in a different room and they may wake up at night and think, where am I? And that can create a lot of agitation, a lot of paranoia. So you're going to want to bring visual reminders of home so that at least there's some connection. There's a there's a comfort source there. Also bring clocks. You know, a lot of the hotels have digital clocks. You may want to bring a clock with hands on it, which is what we talk to a lot of families with dementia. You want to have the clock with hands, kind of like my book, Me Time Monday, although it has a beach scene on it. But if it didn't, it would have hands on the clock. 
And that is just, again, a, it's a gentle reminder to someone with Alzheimer's what the time is. Stay hydrated. I can't say that enough. Uh, 50% of all adults in the U.S. are dehydrated, but we particularly see higher hydration levels in people with dementia. And then also the light therapy that I talked about in the last episode. Think about, you know, making sure that you draw the drapes before dusk happens, maybe even bringing a mobile portable light therapy lamp with you that is like on a tablet where they can get some of that light therapy energy that will help them not be as restless at night and get them into some good sleep cycles. So those are all just some general tips. But as I said, I'll have some resources and some links on the episode guide page. I also just in Welcome Design wanted to do a shout out to one of my favorite charities and philanthropies. I try to donate. It's, you know, I wish I had more to give, but at least I can give a little bit. And that's all we need to do if we can all give just a little bit. But it's the Tunnel to Towers organization or T2T. You may have seen some of their commercials on television, but they are fantastic charity for a lot of reasons. One is they focus on first responders and vets and particularly the first responders from 9-11. So they do a few things. One is they create smart homes for veterans who have disabilities, who need to have, you know, the shelves lowered, the stove tops lowered or, or you know, higher increase than the curbless showers with the handrails and the shower head, handheld shower head all in the right places. They do these wonderful homes they create for all of these these veterans and their families if they come back with disabilities. The other thing that they do is for first responders. So this includes law enforcement as well as our firefighters. So anyone who is lost in the line of duty, they will pay off the mortgage of your family. So rest assured that you, you know, yes, you're going out and sacrificing and possibly risking your life for us, but we will take care of your family. I love that message. That alone is worth it. And it makes me cry. Every time I see the commercials, I get teared up. But it's just such a comfort, I think, for people who are walking out the door, not knowing if they're going to come home and what may happen to their family. And then lastly, they just announced last week, and I have to say, Stephen Siller, who is the one of the founders of Tunnel to Towers that is in memory of his brother who was lost in uh, the 9-11 tragedy. He was a firefighter. Uh, he he ought to run for president, actually, because he is so fantastic in getting things done. I love people who can just put their money where their mouth is. But 95% of all of your dollar donation goes to the services. And one of the things he announced last week, and he did it with uh, actors Dennis Quaid and also a former baseball pitcher, Andy Pettit. They were in Austin, Texas, and they announced that they had taken over. I think it was a hotel that was either abandoned or or the, the land was going to, you know, they were going to take the hotel down or whatever. They bought it and they they converted it into a home for homeless veterans. And so the whole first floor is all the services and counseling and all the things that we know that we need to give to our vets to keep them on that path of wellness. And then, of course, all the rooms are clean and safe and a place for veterans to be to, you know, regroup and hopefully, you know, start down a different path for their lives. Anyway, love this guy. Love this organization. 3,000 vets in Texas. And it's just the first. Let me tell you, I know he's going to do this across the country. It takes donations and all that. So if you're thinking about giving uh, Tuesday, which happens the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, you're looking for a group to give to, think about this one. 
because I just I just love them to death. I think what they're doing is fantastic. And the other one too, the brought out Gary uh, Sinise Foundation has done so much, particularly with our World War II vets. And now that we don't have many of them left, they're focusing on our Vietnam vets and our Korean War veterans because you know we're losing more and more of them every day. And when we start to forget about these conflicts and about the sacrifices again that our war fighters and their military families and family caregivers have made will repeat the mistakes of our past. And we don't want to do that. So we have to keep the history alive and we have to give as much support as we can to all of these wonderful veterans and their their families and their family caregivers. So with that, let's go to our Me Time Monday wellness hack, which is for Thanksgiving. And it's our gratitude gravy recipe. Welcome to our Me Time Monday Wellness Hack. This episode, we focus on the holiday of Thanksgiving and offer you our gratitude gravy recipe based on research from my new book, Me Time Monday. What is our gratitude gravy recipe? Well, when we think of gravy, we think of a warm, savory sauce that tastes good on anything, biscuits, potatoes, meats, veggies, noodles, you name it. We also think of family since gravy is typically associated with the Thanksgiving holiday and the flavors of this season, which means coming home. Our gratitude gravy recipe is similar to the gravy you eat. It is made from the simplest of ingredients, your thoughts and emotions that are mixed and enjoyed to provide feelings of comfort and satisfaction that linger for minutes, hours, days, or weeks. So the gratitude gravy recipe is composed of using positive emotions and thought thoughts that express thankfulness, mixed with three deep breaths, once a day. And after four weeks, gratitude will grow and linger for positive health benefits for another 12 weeks. And it serves one caregiver with wellness. Finding gratitude is not about things. It is mostly about people or more precisely our relationships. Our caregiving relationships are like roads, sometimes long, sometimes bumpy, sometimes wet with tears, sometimes sunny with smiles, but often meandering and confusing with no clear roadmap. Yet we continue to travel this road and learn new things that can bring us joyful memories. In the science of health, we know gratitude is a type of superfood for the soul. Being grateful and practicing gratitude has shown to be our social glue. It keeps us kind, it makes us empathetic and optimistic by amplifying the good in life. It also rescues us from toxic feelings and strengthens our bonds with family, friends, and those we love. Studies have shown that gratitude practiced every day for even one minute can lower blood pressure, improve our sleep, lessen our aches and pains, and give us the incentive we need to choose healthier behaviors. And the great thing is gratitude grows over time, just as the rings of a tree accumulate to tell the tree's age and make it stronger. Gratitude grows over time to make your caregiving journey easier and your emotional health stronger. The source of gratitude does not have to be another person. It can be faith, nature, art, sense of spirituality. You may want to write your gratitude thoughts in a journal or just remind yourself to be thankful for someone or something when you awake in the morning or go to sleep at night. And while gratitude is very personalized to you, studies show if you practice gratefulness daily for four weeks, it continues to provide positive health benefits for the next 12 weeks. On our podcast episode guide page, we bring you the Emmons McCullough Gratitude Scale, 
a self-test to see how grateful you are. These leading experts in gratitude science offer the following tips to get an attitude of gratitude. Don't just list things or people you are grateful for. Give details and explain how you feel. Number two, blend gratitude about things, such as good health, with gratitude for people, such as the loved one you care for and the quality time you spend together or stories you have learned. Number three, focus on positive feelings and outcomes. Don't allow the negative or frustrating thoughts to intrude on your exercise. And number four, savor surprise. Write about what has brought you joy, not just happy moments, but a joyful life and especially things you did not plan or expect. Is there a silver lining even in tough times? We are what we let in and what we give out. That defines us. We cannot control the world, but we can control our reaction to it. Yes, rain will fall, but a rainbow will follow. Make this caregiving journey a gift you give yourself, the gift of gratitude. It will keep you going. We hope you enjoyed this Me Time Monday wellness hack. Each episode of our Caregiving Club on Air podcast will feature a new Me Time Monday wellness hack. You can find these and more in my new book, Me Time Monday, the weekly wellness plan to find balance and joy for a busy life, or visit metimemonday.com or caregivingclub.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Caregiving Club on Air. Please hit the subscribe button to listen to us on our newest channels, Amazon Music, SiriusXM, iHeartRadio, Pandora, as well as Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, and other listening channels. Check out all the resources and article links on our episode guide page at caregivingclub.com. Just hit the podcast tab and email us with comments or questions at podcast at caregivingclub.com. Thank you again for listening. Take care and stay well.